is called Untamed by Glennon Doyle. She's a Christian blogger and an author, and she's written several books, but there are so many wonderful nuggets in this book, including a chapter on anger and how anger can deliver important information about where one of our boundaries has been crossed. Glennon describes boundaries in this way. She says, a boundary is the edge of one of our root beliefs about ourselves and about the world. A boundary is the edge of one of our root beliefs about ourselves and about the world. Glennon holds that when one of our boundaries is crossed, we get angry. We get angry because the boundary that is crossed is a belief that we hold to be true. And so perhaps we can think about beliefs as kind of like computer software programming us, sometimes without us even knowing it. And some beliefs are learned, some come from our faith, some are cultural, some are from our religious background or our family upbringing or our community. And in this metaphor, we're kind of like computers. And even though we don't choose those subconscious programs, they're always running in our lives. Our beliefs control our decisions, our perspectives, our feelings, our bias, and our interaction with others. And it's important to understand and to be aware of what we really believe to be true about ourselves and about our world. And nothing unearths that faster than examining what makes us angry. Anger can show us what our boundaries are. And to sit with that anger and really be curious about what is ticking you off can help you understand your beliefs and truths of how you experience yourself in the world. Glennon writes, anger delivers our boundaries to us, our, our boundaries deliver our beliefs to us, and our beliefs determine how we experience the world. So a couple of months ago, I was having a conversation with somebody that I know. And in the course of our conversation, he told me that he didn't believe women should be pastors, that men were called by God to lead the church, and that perhaps it was acceptable in the denomination that I represent, but not in his, and there was scripture to support his belief. And some of you may know my story. When I was nine years old, I experienced God's call to be a pastor. And now, there was no female pastor as a role model in my life, but my parents supported me, even sat through home church services and hymn singing, but after a couple of years and some awkward conversations with my elementary school friends who thought the idea was just plain weird, I buried that dream. But after four decades, God's call persisted. I went to seminary, and here I am. So to have someone tell me that God only calls men made me a little angry. Now, not the table flipping over, throwing money across the room, whipping people kind of anger, but angry enough that I could physically feel it for quite a while. I wanted to revisit that conversation over and over in my head and each time would craft a better argument for why his use of scripture was inaccurate and out of context. And I held on to that anger for a while and then I exchanged it for a slow simmering bitterness. So I began to sit with that anger to see what it was trying to tell me about myself, not about the person who said it, but about me. What was my anger telling me about what I believed to be true about myself and what I believed to be true about our world? 
And I came to understand that my anger came from a boundary that got crossed on a root belief about myself and the world, a truth I hold that not only do I trust God's call in my life, but I also believe that it doesn't matter who you are. God will call whom God will call. And this is a root belief that is a truth for me and always will be. It's what drives my actions and ministry, helping people know they have purpose and a calling. The boundary cross was personal, but it also angered me because there are a lot of people of faith who think that certain things or certain or callings are reserved for only certain people. I work towards forgiveness in that interaction, but I also choose to hold on to that belief as foundational for me. But sometimes anger delivers a root belief that once you really sit with your anger and try to understand what the boundary was that was crossed, you maybe don't want to hang on to that belief any longer. That particular belief is no longer true about you or about your world. Glennon used an example in her chapter, and I realized it was true in my life, and perhaps some of you can resonate with the following scenario too. Mark, my husband, has been working from home since COVID, and he works hard. And sometimes I overhear meetings where he's delivering just the data or information that sets the team back on course or solves a problem or points out a problem. But he also watches Netflix science fiction series at a very high volume in the middle of the day. <laughs> now, it was always a belief for as long as I can remember that rest and TV watching happens in the evenings after the day's tasks are complete. So to continually come home and find Mark relaxing at me was activating and it made me a little angry. Again, not turn over the tables, flipping things over, temple, temple, you know, angry. More like a loudish straightening up in the vicinity of the Netflix washing, loud dishwasher unloading, that kind of thing. But as I sat with my anger to notice what boundary was crossed, why I was angry, and my wonderful, loving husband, who was so happy to be stretched out, eating dots and watching Stargate, <laughs> I realized it was more of a longing and a jealousy that fueled my anger. Must be nice to relax in the middle of the day to feel content with your worth that you don't need to keep moving to prove it. And I realized that I had a root belief that wasn't serving me anymore. A person's worth isn't determined by how busy they are or the time limits they put around work and rest time. Hard work is important. So is play and non-productivity. And worth is not tied to either one. And it's not my job assigning worth to myself or to others God declares we are all of sacred worth, period. And so because that belief is no longer true about myself or about my world, I can adapt it to better reflect what I now believe about worth and worthiness. Anger delivers our boundaries to us. Our boundaries deliver our beliefs to us. Our beliefs determine how we experience the world. 
And so let's look back at our scripture reading for today because Jesus was angry. Jesus was really, really angry. This is probably Jesus' most outward and physical display of anger in all of the stories of the Gospels. We read accounts where Jesus gets frustrated and sometimes deals out some pretty pointed and harsh words to the disciples when they're just not getting it. But this story stands out and has been studied and discussed over the centuries. Something I think is noteworthy here is that all four Gospels contain this story of the temple cleansing, and the account and the details are all very similar. However, the placement of the story within the Gospels is different. In the Synoptic Gospels, in Mark, Luke, and Matthew, this event happens on Jesus' final entrance into Jerusalem, and it's presented as one of the major factors in the plot to arrest and eventually kill Jesus. But in the Gospel of John, this story is found at the beginning, as Jesus is just starting his ministry. John's gospel doesn't start with the birth story, as some of the other gospels do, but with the beautiful poetry of, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. I've heard John's prologue described like an overture of a symphony, including the themes of the gospel, themes of light and life, rejection and belief in Jesus and the revelation and presence of God. And immediately after this introduction, the gospel recounts the baptism of Jesus by John the baptizer, then the calling of the disciples, then the story of the miracle at the wedding of Cana. But then the story of Jesus overturning the tables in the temple comes next. Very, very early in his ministry as opposed to the end of his ministry found in the other gospels. And it's possible that the writers of John's gospel may have reordered the events for a theological reason, which would not be out of character for authors of ancient literature. Perhaps the writer wanted to set the stage for the conflict between Jesus and the religious and political establishment early in the gospel to set the tone. Scholars tell us that the ancient gospel writers were not preoccupied with chronological accuracy. And so for 21st century Christians, we can learn a lot as we pay attention to where the story is placed in the gospel because it can give us additional insight as to the message and meaning of the story. The passage I read in John shares that Jesus, a faithful Jew, was headed to Jerusalem for the yearly celebration of Passover. In Judaism, described in the, in the Hebrew scripture, our Old Testament, there are three yearly pilgrimage festivals and the biggest festival bringing pilgrims from all over the ancient Near East is the holiday of Passover. It is the historical recounting of God's faithfulness in the liberation of people of Israel from captivity in Egypt. It's one of the most populated times in the city. There would be masses of people. Scholars believe hundreds of thousands of people. It was packed. In order to worship God in accordance with Jewish law, the worshipers needed certain animals for sacrifice, pigeons, doves, sheep. And because many were traveling long distances, bringing sacrificial animals just wasn't practical. So they would buy the animals on arrival at the temple. In order to purchase the animals, they also had to pay the required temple tax, and the pilgrims needed to change their money, their native or local money, to, from Roman coins into temple currency. All of this business and exchange of money and purchasing of animals happened in the outer court called the court of the Gentiles. And there was corruption, 
as the foreigners were taken advantage of with very unfair exchange rates. I've got a little example of the, um, of the temple as imagined. Um, there was only one temple, and maybe actually there's a photograph, there we go. There was only one temple, and that one temple was in Jerusalem. The building itself was fairly small. The actual building might have fit inside the infield of a baseball stadium. However, the large structure all around it, the large plaza, the porticos, the columns, the staircases, all of that were built up by Herod the Great on a monumental scale, filling up something like 10 football fields. So we have then this very large, conspicuous, massive structure in the center of Jerusalem, which attracted pilgrims from near and far. Now in the temple itself, we have the tribe of priests, all descending from Aaron, brother of Moses. They officiated at the altar. They sacrificed the animals brought forward by the pilgrims in accordance with Jewish law. And they also performed other similar tasks inside the temple. Only the priests were allowed to actually enter the innermost areas of the temple, and only the high priest was able to go to the inner chamber, the Holy of Holies, where it is believed God resided. And now I've got kind of a diagram. Sully, if you want to put that up there. Even the religious and the pious Jews were prevented from going deeper into the temple courts unless they belonged to the tribe of priests. Further back, then, the Gentiles could attend and participate in some of the rituals and the business taking place in the temple. But there were signs posted both in Greek and Latin warning, warning foreigners and uncircumcised persons that crossing into one of the inner courtyards was punishable by death. So even though it was entirely run by a small group of people, and even though most people can never get in, the temple as a whole, the institution, the values, and the structure played a very important role in the society at large. And it was very clearly a commentary on who was in and who was not. So while this temple scene is a seemingly typical scenario, Jesus had most likely attended Passover in Jerusalem every year of his life and witnessed all the activity in and around the temple, he focused his anger on this place at this time. Well, this past week, I read a number of commentaries and theologians' perspectives on why Jesus was angry. Most agree this is a pretty noteworthy expression of anger, turning over tables, pouring out coins, driving out the cattle, the sheep, the doves, with a whip, raising his voice, if we can read into the scriptures' um, exclamation, use of exclamation points. Uh, one of my favorite theologians, Reverend Leonard Sweet, calls this event the temple tantrum. And I wonder if perhaps we can use Glennon Doyle's lens in seeking to understand Jesus' root beliefs to help us identify where those boundaries were crossed. A very compelling reason for Jesus' anger was the location of these business transactions. The merchants and the money changers set up shop in the court of Gentiles. This crowd and business interaction would impact everyone trying to get into the temple area, but especially the travelers who had come great distances. They were forced into this loud Wall Street with animals-like environment as they were seeking to worship God. The religious elite were deep into the temple courts, and it was the foreigner, the marginalized, that were separated and kept out. It was an overt who's in and who's out system. And this helps us identify a barrier that was crossed for Jesus, I think. 
If we're to analyze the Gospels and name the individuals and systems that Jesus exhibited the most anger towards, it was towards the religious elite and the privileged of the time, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those who found religious pride in their status and position and separation. And I wonder if in the temple that day, Jesus was recalling the prophet Isaiah's powerful words when he expresses God's frustration when many of the Israelites felt they were above reproach, they lived by their own standards and had institutionalized their religion such that they didn't hear or care about the cry of the needy. Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 8 reads, Don't let the immigrant who has joined with the Lord say, The Lord will exclude me from the people. And don't let the eunuch say, I'm just a dry tree. The Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, choose what I desire and remain loyal to my covenant. In my temple and courts, I will give them a monument and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an enduring name that won't be removed. The immigrants who have joined me, serving me and loving my name, becoming my servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath without making it impure and those who hold fast to my covenant. I will bring them to my holy mountain and bring them joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their entirely burned offerings and sacrifices on my altar. My house will be known as a house of prayer for all people, says the Lord, who gathers Israel's outcasts. I will gather still others to those I have already gathered. My house will be known as a house of prayer for all people. God's plan was for Israel to draw all the nations to worship, but now the nations could hardly get in the building because of all the commercial activity. Those in power had manipulated worship into a greedy business opportunity alongside spiritual dominance over others, basically a system that kept the belief that you get to be over them. Each time Jesus dealt with the religious elite, he became a magnet for the very ones that were taken advantage of or kept on the outside. Just like today, our world is filled with people who are looking for someone to stand up for them, stand with them. And perhaps it's not merely the cost of the animal sacrifice or the corrupt business practices that is making Jesus angry. Perhaps it's the whole belief system associated with sacrifice and the long-held belief that God is angry and needs to be appeased with blood Perhaps Jesus is overturning that belief right along with the money changers tables and the whole religious system built upon it. And I've got a couple of scriptures for reference from, uh, from some of the prophets. More than 700 years before Jesus, the prophet Hosea dared to say that God desired compassion, not sacrifice. And then around that same time, Isaiah dared to say that God found sacrifices unimpressive when people weren't seeking justice for the oppressed. And centuries earlier than that, King David made the claim that God takes no pleasure in sacrifice, but desires a contrite spirit and truth in the innermost being. In other words, maybe Jesus' anger came from a root belief that this type of sacrifice and system is against God's desire as told in the prophetic and poetic traditions within Judaism, where prophets were trying to point the way to the religious elite, and, but they continued to emphasize systems that benefited them. And then there's the powerful statement at the end of this temple cleansing event. Jesus said, 
that he would raise the temple in three days. And the gospel tells us that he was referring to his body, that Jesus' body is the temple, and God no longer resided in a single building accessible only to a few. As I read the account of the temple cleansing in John this week, that message seemed to stick out to me more than in the past readings of this event. Richard Rohr writes about this belief of interiorizing religion. He says, when God is seen on the outside, the sacrificial system will remain. However, when God moves inside you, you are the temple and sacrifice is no longer required. The only sacrifice now is me. In this moment, Jesus is setting the stage for his ministry and his teachings. The place where we find God isn't in a building where only a few can enter. Jesus is telling us God can be found inside of him and ultimately inside of us. Jesus was challenging external rituals which delivered shallow relationships with God and at its worst, hypocrisy, when it bears no resemblance to inner motivations and does not change the heart towards God's ways. Later in the gospel, when Jesus was pressed by the religious elites as to the most important laws. Remember, they were trying to trick him. What's the most important law? And Jesus said to love God and love your neighbor and that the entire law can be contained in this. He's saying religious observance that, that originates in the heart. For Jesus, one's heart is the temple the core of faith from which all thoughts, words, and actions overflow. And maybe that's why at the end of the temple cleansing account in John, it says, many believed in his name because they saw signs that he was doing, of what he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to testify about anyone, for he himself knew what was in everyone. Jesus knew their hearts, and would spend his entire ministry seeking to transform them. We don't need to look very far to understand Jesus' beliefs about himself and the world, to understand his anger because of a boundary that was being crossed. All throughout his ministry, he gathered to himself all who were unwelcomed at the center, all who had been dominated or oppressed and kept out, and then... He entered all of those places, like the temple, with them. He went into the temple, and he overturned the tables and chairs of the merchants and money changers as a sign that the exchange of money and sacrifice of animals is not needed in order to have access to God. And then in came the lost, the lonely, the last, and the least. He changed the seating chart in the temple. For so long... The Jewish authorities had controlled this system. And then Jesus comes and invites in all the people they were trying to keep out, just like Jesus does, even today, among us and through us. This past week, I've loved reflecting on the possible reasons John's gospel begins with this story and that the religious authorities were upset with Jesus and they came to him and they said, by what authority do you take down these barriers? And Jesus responds by showing them that maybe they were looking for God's authority in all the wrong places. Jesus is saying early in, his, in this gospel, I am God's temple, 
and all are welcome. Do not look for God in human power or successes and systems that privilege some and not all, systems that are built on an us versus them. And that's where John's gospel begins with taking down the barriers that kept some people from experiencing God's presence. And this was and is good news. Not necessarily for those who profited off of these systems, but to those who lived on the margins, the tax collectors, the widows, the foreigner, the other, all who have been excluded. And Jesus calls all of us into the very heart of God, at God's banquet table, the holy of holies, not because we've somehow made it in through the gates, but because there's room for all of us. As I shared during announcements this morning, this Wednesday begins our yearly journey to the cross. It's a remembrance of the death and resurrection of Jesus. This journey is called Lent, and it begins with Ash Wednesday and continues then for 40 days until Easter. So I invite you again to uh, join us in the sanctuary on Wednesday at 7 o'clock, uh, but also to use this time to reflect upon the tables that need overturned in your heart. Are we angry about the things that God is angry about? Are our root beliefs grounded in Jesus's way? I also invite you to use this time to hold space for those times when you do get angry. What is your anger telling you about your boundaries? And what are your boundaries telling you about your beliefs? Are your beliefs grounded in old patterns that harm your relationship with God and others? Pastor Joe's series over the past few weeks has reminded us of the liturgies of our culture, those rituals and practices and habits and values we're surrounded by all the time. It's like the air we breathe without even knowing it. And these practices can also form our beliefs. And so in the course of studying this week, I came across a song from an artist that I hadn't heard of before. Um, her name is Carolyn Cobb. You've heard of Carolyn Cobb? I don't think I have. Um, but I love the lyrics to her song, Turn the Table. Mm. And I'll have Sully put those up on the screen there. She writes, when all the world tries to get in the building, he'll stand like an open door because in three days, going to rise a signal this way to the house of the Lord. Don't you know that your heart is a temple? He's knocking down your door. So let him in, and he'll turn over tables, make your heart a house for the Lord. And so may we seek to be faithful to the good news of the gospel and Jesus' way, a way that shapes us differently than the world does. And may we experience the world and our worth through Jesus' eyes and through the transforming love of Christ. Please pray with me. Yeah. <laughs> Almighty and loving God, soon we will leave this space of worship. And while so much of the road ahead is uncertain, the path constantly changing, we know some things that are as solid and sure as the ground beneath our feet and the sky above our heads. We know you are love. Mm -hmm. We know Christ's light endures. We know the Holy Spirit 
is with us here, there, and everywhere, found in the space between all things, closer to us than our next breath, binding us to each other until we meet again. Amen. Amen.